Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you are new here, you have joined us at the very final message of our spring series where we have been walking through the book of James. We've been looking at it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week. We've been studying the truth and the wisdom and the direction that this letter contains, that the Holy Spirit inspired James to write this letter with just a lot of commands, like a lot of things that we're supposed to do and apply. And he speaks to a lot of different areas of our life. He spoke to our suffering and our temptation. He spoke to how we speak and how we think and how we deal with one another. And so this morning, as we wrap up the letters, we see James's closing words, as we see his kind of closing command. What we're going to see is that he's going to wrap all of that up with a foundational kind of principle that should be applied to all of these different situations, all these situations and scenarios that he already spoke into. What he's doing here is he's kind of giving us this kind of neat little bow to wrap it all up, to remind us that in all of these different circumstances, in all of these situations, that we're called to be a people who are committed to prayer. That a life that is fruitful and faithful according to the will of God is one that is bathed, that is saturated in prayer. And God has given us prayer because it has the power to not only build our faith, but also to bring us peace. It reminds us that we are not in control. Praise the Lord that we are not ultimately in control, but instead we serve a God who is. That's what we see right here at the end of James. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you, James, we're going to start in uh, chapter 5, verse 12. If you want to turn in your Bible, go there on your phone. But what we're going to see is, as I said, this kind of command for the people of God to commit themselves to prayer in all circumstance. And the reason that we do this is because God uses prayer to really form us. Remember, that's the goal of God, repeated over and over again, the book of James is his goal, his aim for us is our spiritual maturity. He wants us to grow into, be, into being people who are wise, people who live according to his commands, people that are obedient to the wisdom that he's provided. And part of that is prayer. My wife and I, we've seen this play out in our family uh, numerous times where, man, there, there's nothing like parenthood and a growing family dynamic that really forces you into a more prayerful life, like because we recognize over and over again that things are just spinning outside of our control. Just uh, a few years ago, my wife and I, we had this really kind of tumultuous week in our family where our youngest was really young and he had to stay in the hospital. Like there were some issues uh, that doctors were concerned about uh, that they needed to keep him under observation. They needed to kind of do some blood work and run some tests. And so they admitted him into Scott and White Hospital here in town. And so while he was there, my wife needed to stay with him. I mean, he was an infant. He was still, you know, nursing and all that. And so my wife stayed with him and I took our big kids and was like, okay, we're just gonna dad it up this week. And what happened was, is even though my wife was in the hospital with our youngest, because he was actually sick, my older two kids were like, well, why don't we get sick? That'd be fun. And so what happened was we were a couple days into this like four to five day span of just dad and the big kids. And when we were driving across town one evening, uh, my old, our oldest, our daughter, she was just like, I don't feel really good. I'm like, you're just tired, right? It's nighttime, you just need to go to sleep. She's like, I don't know. I'm like, what, what's going? And then all of a sudden, boom. All of her stomach uh, just erupts across about half of our minivan. And I'm like, okay, it's all right. You know, God is big. Uh, he, is, he is mighty. He is powerful to save. And so we got home. I cleaned it up 
put her to bed. I was like, it's all right, you know, we're through it, right? We're stronger for it. So the next day rolls around, she's feeling better. I'm like, okay, so we go about our day, we're doing our different things. We're driving home the evening once again the next night, and my son, our, our, our oldest son, he was like, I don't feel really good. And I was like, okay, we're prepared for this, right? Because of my daughter, you know, just ejecting everything in the car the day before. I was like, we're, I'm ready. They had buckets prepared, right? I was like, you have a bucket right in your lap. I had put the buckets in their lap. I, you know, basically there's just tarps all over the car. I'm like, look, just get it in the bucket, right? That's your goal, bud. Like, if you really feel sick, like, you just get in the bucket. And he's like, okay, okay. And so we drive for another minute, and then boom, boom. He covers the other half of our car uh, with his culinary journey of the day. And I was like, all right. So we get home, I clean it up, put him to bed. We get to the next night, I'm like, look, we need God. Like, and, and more importantly, we need mom. And so I was like, look, we, we are in dire, we're at the end of our rope. And this is, you know, if things have been rough, like I'm trying to get work done, I'm trying to take care of them. Everything's wild. They're still both kind of on the fritz. And I'm like, we, we just, we need something. We need the Lord to move. And so we were driving home once again in the evening. And we were driving past Scott and White Hospital. And so as we were driving past it, my kid, the big kids were asking about like, when's mom coming home? Or, you know, when are, and I was like, well, we don't know. Like we, we were still waiting on the doctors and these tests and these analyses and stuff. And so I was like, but hey, look, there's the hospital right there. How about, let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray and ask God to heal your brother and to let him and mommy come home tonight. Let's pray for that, all right? I didn't have high hopes for that, but I was like, let's, let's pray. God is big and he is mighty. He's bigger than all of your vomit. I know it's to be true. I have to hold fast to that hope. And so I was like, let's pray that God is going to bring mommy home. So we say the prayer. I lead the prayer. It's very short, very sweet. We're literally just driving. I'm like, God, He'll, he'll Liam, let him and mommy come home tonight. Amen. Like two minutes later, I get a call. Comes across the car speakers. It's my wife. She calls, she says, hey, you wouldn't believe it. This is very unexpected, but actually the doctors just came in. They said everything is good. Like they didn't say anything about it that morning, but they were like, you know what? Actually, they went ahead and released us and we're gonna come home tonight. So I'm like, okay, that's great. Love you, bye. And hang up the phone. And immediately, my older two kids and myself, we all, same moment, all say, whoa. That was wild, right? And all of a sudden, my older, my, our oldest, our daughter, I'll never forget, she was like, did God just do that? I was like, yes, he did. He really did. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I've seen the Lord answer big prayers over the years of my life. Like, I've seen that, but that was really the first time, one of the, old, one of the really unique times where I got to see the Lord answer a prayer with a yes right away with my kids. And I still try to take them back to that. I still remind them of that moment of like, hey, remember that time that we prayed that God would send mommy home and then he did? Like, that was amazing, right? It was one of those times where we got to see just with, with absolute clarity that God, he heard our prayer and he answered it with a yes. And it's not that God always says yes to our requests. It's not that God is you know, waiting on us and he just gives us whatever we think we need. Instead, he has a plan, he has a purpose that sometimes is greater than ours. But God heard our prayer, he answered that prayer. And what that did is it built my faith. It really did, it built, it reinforced my faith in him and it helped build the faith of my kids. And it brought us peace in that moment because we were like, you know what? God is bigger, God is greater. And we still have buckets in the cart just in case, right? Just so you know, that's just 
Parenting 101, always have a bucket. And so we had that moment where really it was so clear to me the power of prayer. And all of us hopefully have had moments or we've had experiences we can recognize, you know, the power of prayer is not something, it's not secondary. Prayer is not this like icing on the spiritual cake. God wants us to know that prayer, our communication with him is vital to a healthy, growing relationship with our God. That's, that's just how relationships work, right? It requires communication. God says, I wanna hear from you and I wanna speak to you. So take the time to be in prayer. And that prayer holds power in every circumstance. And so as James closes out his letter, this is really what he's coming to. He's coming to this really just universal command, this universal principle for all believers. He says, if you wanna live the persevering life, it needs to be a life that is prayerful, That's prayerful. That's how the Lord moves you towards maturity. That's how you stay in line with his will and with his desire. And so James is gonna highlight a few different kind of big areas of our life where prayer holds power, but it's not an exhaustive, comprehensive list. James is picking a few kind of key areas But in doing so, he's really laying out the spectrum, trying to tell us, look, we pray in the highs, we pray in the lows, and we pray in everything in between, right? That's the goal, is that we as followers of Jesus Christ would have lives that are just consistently, constantly in prayer, right? So James is gonna highlight, like I said, three kind of big areas. He's gonna talk about the power of prayer in our suffering. He's gonna talk about the power of prayer in our sickness. And he's gonna talk about the power of prayer when sin feels like an unbeatable foe. So if you read with me in James chapter five, we're starting in verse 12, where he says this. He says, above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into judgment. All right, so as James is preparing to speak about prayer, he's kind of going back to the idea of words, right? He talked about this a lot earlier in the letter, about the power of words and the destructive potential of words. Here, he's reminding his people, he's reminding us as believers that our words themselves are not magical. Our words don't inherently hold absolute power. That's why he says you don't need to live your life making these oaths, trying to bind reality to your will. It says that's not the power, that your words can't do that. It says instead you should seek to live in a life that is trustworthy, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But, but you should be trusting that ultimately it's not up to you. You can't bind heaven. You can't bind earth by your word. He says, but instead, instead of trying to shape reality based on your words, he says this is where your words should go. This is how your words should be used. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he should pray. Is anyone in good spirits? He should sing praises. James is saying your words don't have this mystical power to change the world. He says, but your words give you access to the one who is in control. And so use your words in prayer. Pray to the Lord, sing his praises. We pray in the suffering and we also pray in celebration. And when we do this, what happens is the Lord uses our, our, our sharing of these highs and these lows uh, for our benefit. It's for our sake. This is really what's best for us. Because if we experience something wonderful, right, we're in a moment of celebration, it's natural for us to wanna share that. 
right? Our kid scores the winning goal in the soccer match, or we have this amazing experience. We get the promotion at work. We get, you know, whatever it might be. We pass the test. And suddenly, when we share that, what happens is we tell other people about the joy we've experienced. Our joy actually increases, right? The Lord uses that. It's, it's part of our nature that, that we gain more satisfaction, more fulfillment from these events as we share them with other people. It increases our joy. It also, as we share, decreases our burden, when we tell people, we share about the struggle that we're facing, the, the illness that we have, the, the issues that have sprung up in this relationship or in that situation, when we do that, the Lord uses it. We, we, share, we spread the load of some of those difficulties and it, it decreases the burden that we feel. So often, many times, when we're in a tough spot, we, we know if I'm able to just speak it aloud, I speak it out to the Lord, I share it with my God in prayer, or I, I share it with, with someone that I know, that I love, that I trust, just the act of sharing, of speaking those words aloud, it brings light to the situation and it really, it alleviates some of the burden that we feel. This is a practice that I have in my home with my kids. Every single evening at dinner, we always go around the table. The first conversation we have is we share our favorite thing of the day. And we say, hey, what was your favorite thing? And when we do that, what we're doing is we're, we're sharing about the wonderful things that God has done to us. It, it increases our gratitude, but it also increases our joy that we can celebrate with one another. And, and you know, everyone kind of, we're, we're, in a, we're tracking with it. Our kids are eight, six, and four, and so they're all kind of tracking. Our four-year-old still struggles a little bit to understand the concept of space and time. And so many times when we get around to his favorite thing, or a lot of times he starts, uh, he doesn't always pick things that happen. Sometimes he's looking to the future because he's so certain of what is to come about what the Lord has promised, I guess. Uh, but we'll say, like, hey, bud, what was your favorite thing? He'll say, oh, my favorite, like just this week, he was like, my favorite thing today is that soon it will be my birthday and we're gonna have all my friends and we're gonna build a dinosaur. And I'm like, okay, right, like your birthday is in 11 months, uh, but... I suppose in the, in, uh, you know, in the in this perspective of eternity, it's right around the corner. So way to have that heavenly perspective, bud. You know, like that's the way to go. But it's an opportunity for us to share and to increase our joy. This is what we're commanded to do as followers of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the body of Christ, that we would share our celebrations and our sufferings with one another and with our God. This is what Paul commanded the church in Thessalonica. He says you should always rejoice. You should constantly pray, and in everything you give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We only have four or five times that there's this explicit addressing of a universal will of God, and this is one of those four times where we are told that the will of God for all of us, this universally applied will of God is what? Is that we would be in constant prayer, that we would be sharing with our God our joys and our sorrows, our highs and our lows, because the Lord uses that to increase our joy and to decrease our burden. So we should build a habit of sharing these things with the Lord, but also with one another, also with one another. James is gonna talk about that here in a minute, but, but we are told repeatedly in scripture that we should rally around each other, that yes, we're bringing these things to the Lord, but we also bring it to fellow believers, to other men and women, we're following after Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons we talk about community at Southwood so often. It's because we recognize that God has called us to a life not of isolation, not of individualism, but instead a life that is meant to be lived in community. It's the reason that a couple times a semester we pull out things like table for eight. 
This is an opportunity that we have as just the Southwood local church body to gather together and to share our lives with one another. It's a, it's a thing where we try to put together, uh, again, to about twice a semester. So the one coming up is over the month of April. And so you can scan this code, you can register, and you can let us know if you're willing to host or if you're willing to just help out with a meal with eight-ish people, right? It's, you know, it's variable, but about eight of other men and women from Southwood or families, you know, whether you're empty nest or a student or anything in between. We create these moments, we wanna create these opportunities for us to simply sit down with one another. And there's not a big agenda, there's not like a long conversation point, it's not like a pitch to buy a timeshare. Like we, we really just have this time set aside, or we wanna have this time set aside one evening over the month of April that you sit down and you just share your life with one another. Because we know that the Lord uses that. He wants to build these relationships in the body so that we can share our highs and our lows because God uses that time to grow us in our spiritual maturity. So I would encourage you, if you've been a part of Table of Freight in the past, if you never have, now's the time. Month of April, let's go. Let's gather together, let's share our lives. James says that we can commit ourselves or we should commit ourselves to prayer in the times of suffering and celebration. He also says we should commit ourselves to prayer in times where we are facing sickness. Read with me in verse uh, 14. He says this, is anyone among you ill? He should summon the elders of the church and they should pray for him and anoint him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. So James is shifting to a specific type of suffering, right? He says, some of you are sick, some of you are ill. He says, and if that's the case, you should pray, you should pray. Here specifically, he's saying you should summon the leadership of your church and have them pray with you and for you. And he uses this example of not just even prayer, but it's paired with this anointing of oil, which was a common practice in that day. And the the term he's using here for anoint, it's not the term, it's not the Greek term that's used for using oil in a religious kind of big ceremonial manner. It's the term that's used to describe the medicinal use. It's almost like, you could almost translate it as like rubbing or you know, like soothing oil. Because that's what people did back then. It was one of their medicines. They would use oil, they'd rub it on a wound or they would just like drink it straight up, which I'm like, oh, just grease it all up, I guess. But like that's, that was one of their practices. And so James is affirming that practical addressing of illness, but he's pairing it with, and actually the, the primary verb, if we were to break down the real grammar, we really wanna go to eighth grade English, what we would see is that prayer here is the primary verb, that anointing is actually this kind of secondary participle. And so the, the emphasis of this statement is on the prayer. It says that's what holds power. There's not this magical oil that you can get or this you know, special little sauce that God only reserves for some or just for the elders of churches. He says the emphasis here is on prayer, that prayer should be seen as a valuable resource, as a tool, even in our sickness. And so he goes on, he says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So confess your sins to one another Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. So James uses then, you know, verse 15 and 16 to bring to light that there are times where sickness is connected to sin. Right? It's something that he addressed in the very first chapter of the book. He talked about how there is sin in our lives. I mean, he talks about a few times in the book how there is sin in our lives that can lead us towards physical death. 
And so James is saying that we need to be aware that there are times where sin and sickness are, in fact, connected. He's not saying that this is always the case. He's not saying that sickness must be connected to sin. He says, but there are times where that is true. So he says that we need to look at the person holistically. And as we're seeking healing from the Lord, we need to be aware that we're not just physical, that we're spiritual as well. And so as we gather together, as we pray for one another, we're focused on the whole person, not just our physical ailments or needs, but our spiritual ones as well. He says, so gather together, pray for one another, confess your sins, pray for healing. Pray for healing. This is the command. This is... I. This could not be more clear that we should be people who pray in the face of sickness. All right, and it's something that maybe some of us do regularly, so maybe some of us don't. But, but in scripture, I, I mean, it's unavoidable that we are told that there is power in our prayer in the face of sickness. But we pray for healing, recognizing that our faith, that our hope is not tied to the healing itself, but it's tied to the one who heals. It's tied to the healer. This is really important. This was really important for me and my wife as we, about three years ago, my wife kind of had this spring up like weird facial nerve pain stuff and it's just been a chronic pain. It started January of 2020 and it's, it's never left and we don't have a lot of answers. We don't really know. There's, there's been a little bit of progress but it's still kind of undiagnosed. It's just, it's just sort of a burden that she bears and we pray. We have prayed. We are praying. We will continue to pray that God would just heal her. He would just heal her but he hasn't, he hasn't yet. And he may never, he may never heal her this side of heaven. And we could allow that to drive us into bitterness and despair and into doubting the goodness of God. Or we can recognize that God has a plan, that he has a purpose. That James himself even just last week, he brought up the example of Job. He says that Job suffered and he was sick and he had all, these, all this turmoil in his life. And why would God allow that? Well, James tells us, and we see it in the book of Job if we read it, but James tells us, he says, God allowed Job to go through that suffering. Why? Because God used it to reveal his own mercy and compassion with Job's eventual deliverance. And in highlighting and celebrating the faithfulness of Job, even in that turmoil, even in that trial. And so, for us, we have to recognize that, yeah, I'm gonna pray. I'm still gonna pray for healing. But my hope is not dependent upon the healing itself. My hope is in the one who heals. My hope is in the healer. This is what Paul told the church in Corinth when he talked about his own illness, his own kind of malady. He says, therefore, so that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me and a messenger of Satan to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he's telling them, he's being very vulnerable with them. He says, look, I have this issue and we don't know. We don't know if it was a physical ailment. We don't know if it was spiritual. But what we know is that it was a thorn in Paul's flesh, that it caused him pain or discomfort. It was inconvenient. And so Paul says, and along with that pain, along with that thorn, there was a temptation. There was this, this whispered lie in my mind that, that I should doubt the Lord, right? There's this, I should be troubled and I should be, you know, bitter towards the Lord. He says, but I recognize that that's not why God allowed it. God didn't allow me to face that trial because he wanted me to become bitter. God allows me to, has allowed me to face this trial because it's keep, kept me humble. 
But Paul says, it's, it's not that I just, you know, take the pain, I take the thorn, and then I'm just like, all right, this is just my lot in life. Paul says, I prayed that it would go away, right? I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I, Paul, will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Paul had the same perspective that James is pointing people towards. He says, my hope, I pray and I ask the Lord for healing, but my hope is not in the healing. My hope is in the healer. And so I praise the Lord and I'm gonna boast about my weakness because I recognize that God's grace is greater, that his plan is mightier, and that the power of Christ is still residing within me and can shine through me in a unique way as I endure this trial, as I endure this suffering. So we pray for healing. We should build a habit of praying for healing in our life and our loved ones. When we hear stories and, and things, I, I would love for you to pray for my wife. I would humbly ask you to do that. Let's pray for healing. But we recognize that as we ask the Lord for his mercy and grace, as we ask him to move in that mighty way, we also recognize that at times God allows us to continue in that trial because his glory is revealed through our endurance. That's just, that's how he works. It's part of the mystery of God. So we don't lose sight of that hope, our hope in the healer, not the healing itself. But James says, not only should we be praying as we face suffering and as we celebrate, not only should we be praying in the midst of sickness, but he says we should also be praying in the face of sin of the spiritual needs that go along with our physical ones. He, says, he gives, starts with an example in verse 17 of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and there was no rain on the land for three years and six months. All right, so James is bringing his audience back. He's pointing them back into history, Israel's history. He says, remember the prophet Elijah, right? God's spokesperson during that time. God used Elijah to to bring the nation of Israel to repentance. And the way it happened was Elijah, led by the Lord, prayed that God would withhold rain from the land. And God withheld rain from them. There was drought for three and a half years. Why? Because Israel had gotten caught up in idolatry. They were, they were chasing after false gods. They had completely denied Yahweh. They denied the one true living God. And so God, in his judgment, in order to bring them to repentance, he withheld rain. He performed a miracle. But then... After Israel repented, after they recognized that they had erred, that they needed to come back to the Lord, Elijah prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land sprouted with a harvest. See, James is reminding his people, he's about to talk about praying for the repentance of others, about God's conviction to overcome sin in our life. And so James is very intentionally reminding his audience, he's reminding us that God can perform a mighty work in people's hearts and minds that no one is lost, no one is a lost cause. That even people that are straying far from the Lord, always, there's always hope, there's always, it is always within the Lord's ability to bring them back to himself. That's why James reminds him of Elijah. It's why it's so important for us, right? As we are praying for the Lord's movement today, it's vital for us to remember, to be grounded in God's previous work in our past. 
to remember the mighty things that God has done. It's one of the reasons that we go through scripture and look at historical narrative or Old Testament narratives and things like that because it's a reminder for us that God is mighty, that he is big, that he's always at work, that he's done amazing things. And so our confidence today is rooted in this remembrance of the past. This is one of the reasons why I'm really excited We've only talked about once before because we already kind of got a lot of people signed up, but I'm gonna talk about it one more time. We have starting this Thursday, this Thursday evening is the first of five Thursdays this week and then all of April where we were, Trey Jordan, our worship pastor and myself, we're co-teaching this just kind of bonus elective over five Thursday evenings out here at the, or somewhere at Southwood, we'll figure out the room. We're not detail people, but we'll, somewhere at Southwood, we will meet at seven o'clock this Thursday, and we're gonna start a journey of walking through scripture, of looking at, from Genesis to Revelation, the story and the movement and the power of God. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because we know that as we commit ourselves to prayer, as we commit ourselves to asking the Lord expectantly to move in mighty ways, it is so important for us to remember that God has always been at work to remember the amazing ways he's revealed himself in days gone by. This is one of the reasons we do this. So you can register for it. We're really full, but hey, come on, let's go. All right, so James closes like this, though. So he gives this example of Elijah, and he says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that the one who turns the sinner back from his wandering path will save that person's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James is, he uses the illustration of Elijah to move into this final closing point of saying that we are called not just to pray for, you know, deliverance from suffering, uh, to, you know, celebrate the joy of, of success. And we're not just praying in the face of physical sickness. He says we're praying against the power of sin. And he says, and God will use our prayers. God can use our intercession and our intervention to save people from death. Right, and the term he's using here, he's not talking about this you know, metaphysical, spiritual death. This term for soul, it's the same one he used in chapter one. And it's this, there was a portion in chapter one where he talked about how the word of God is implanted within us, that it, it leads us towards life and not towards death, that saves us from death. And that term soul, it's meant to encapsulate the whole person. It's a holistic term. So when he's talking about death, it's, it's an actual physical death. He's saying there is sin that can lead us to a shorter life. So James says, my hope, my desire, God's will for you is that you would be praying that he would move, that he would bring people back to repentance, right? We should always be a people who are praying that God would deliver, that he would convict for us individually, as personally, but even for others. God says, you are all in this together. I want all of you to share one another's burdens. I want all of you to confess your sins to one another. And in doing so, we're strengthened as we bring these things to the Lord. We trust that he has the power to change the lives, to change the minds of those who are wandering from him. And we've all been there. We're all, some of us are there right now and some of us are about to be there. Right? No one is immune from this. And so we all need one another. We need to be praying for repentance. And we trust that God's grace is greater. That's the beauty of our gospel, right? That no one is too far gone. Because when God looked at the earth, he saw rebellion, he saw death, and he saw failure. And none of us could have fixed that. None of us had the ability to, to make our, ourselves right before God. And so the Lord, in his mercy, sent Jesus Christ out of heaven and onto earth 
to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our sin, because of our failure. And when he rose on the third day, he proved his power and his authority over those things that held us captive. And so it was amazing that he would then offer this invitation to all people, not to College Station, Texas, but to the entire world, to all people everywhere. He says, if you call on my name, you can be free from condemnation. You can be free from sin. You'll be free from death. That's our gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by the grace of God through our faith in Christ alone, our faith alone through Christ, in Christ alone. And so that's what we pray for. We pray that fellow believers would remember that, that even as we falter and stumble, even as those who are redeemed, that we would be brought back, that God would bring us back to the right road, that God would then also take those who are far from him, that are lost, that have never put their faith in Christ. We pray that God would bring them to faith. That's what we should be praying for consistently, for salvation for all people everywhere. 